Hey guys, Alex Lokes here, Classic Camera Revival, and welcome back. Um, today's episode, we are, we're, we're going on a little more of a do-it-yourself slant. We're going to be talking about photographic zines, and we have a special guest here at the table for the next few episodes, none other than Matt from our Toronto Film Shooters meetup group, and mad scientist when it comes to uh, cameras. So uh, let's get into it. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Hey guys, and um, it seems these days zines are the hot new thing when it comes to photography, although the idea of the zine is not very new. These are, of course, um, self-produced oftentimes inexpensive fanzines. They were made for the music scene for years. They probably still are. Um, I I read a whole bunch of zines that were related to urban exploration that were basically cut and paste together and then photocopied. Of course, these days we have a lot more advanced systems to design and build zines, but a lot of times people talk about the production, the printing, et cetera, et cetera. That's just a single aspect of it. So we're going we're gonna to break it down right from, from the beginning of um, how to create them, right? And the first step, of course, is editing your work. We like to go out there. We shoot hundreds of images. But the idea of building a story about it, and James, as one of the, well, I would say the professional at the table when it comes to building stories out of your photographs. So what goes into something like that? Well, it's a good question, Alex, and it's a, it's a complicated question. And it's really, I can tell you all of the things that I, w I have a certain standard for, but I think the number one rule about creating a zine is, is really about um, what your own personal preference is, what your own personal standards are. Of course, we all want, you know, an 11 by 17 or a you know a, a twelve by twenty four landscape beautifully gloss papered you know three hundred gsm paper hardcover zine would be amazing, um, but uh, of course the cost of doing something like that is pretty considerable. So it's really a balance of of cost uh, and quality. I think when it comes to zines, you have to ask yourself a question first: Do I want black and white? Do I want color? Do I want a mixture of both? Obviously, color is going to cost you a little bit more. Some of the technical things that you're going to need to think about before even exploring a zine is what kind of editing equipment do you have? What kind of software do you have? What type of output file format um, is your print vendor going to require? <clears throat> are they going to be able to work off of JPEGs? Are they going to want a CMYK output, some type of printer type of output? Um, a lot of the Adobe... Um, software packages today, particularly in design. You can even do it in Photoshop. It's a little bit more cumbersome. Um, but particularly, I think the most ideal thing to use is InDesign uh, these days, at least for me. Others may have, you know, their own preference out there. But I generally, um, when I was putting, uh, like, albums together or booklets, I would do a lot of my designing and layouts in um, InDesign because I could make them my own. I could save those templates and I can just drag and drop uh, my photos in. And then with InDesign, I have the ability to output to a high res PDF. So if I'm printing a, um, 
uh, a zine or like a magazine style output. Um, generally a high res PDF with fully embedded fonts and uh, and all of the high res images embedded in there are what most printers are going to be looking for. Some will want um, uh, sRGB output files. Um, some will take Adobe RGB output files and some will take CMYK. Um, and there's a difference between the two. And it's the same thing when you're printing. So if you're going to, if you're going to, what I would suggest that you do, uh, just to try this out at, at home with your own inkjet printer, if you have an inkjet printer, um, and do this with a digital camera rather than scanning, yes. uh, but uh, take a raw image, um, whatever, it doesn't matter, whatever image that you have. Uh, when you're in doing your raw processing, output one as sRGB, output the other as uh, Adobe RGB, um, and then output the other one as, uh, uh, I forget what it's called. CMYK? Not CMYK, there's a... Um, pro... Pro... Uh, pro Color. Pro Color. Print all three of those uh, out of your printer with the exact same printer settings, and you'll see the difference. And you'll see that the Pro Color has the most amount of variation and bit depth. It looks almost mm. three-dimensional. Just Adobe, don't upload your Pro Color images to Flickr. Your Don't, no. <laughs> no, and, just and, don't. The color yeah. goes anything. Anything you're going to put on the internet, sRGB is the number one rule. Yep. Okay, because it just it, it monitors cannot read uh, Adobe RGB or the Pro Color one. Uh, we'll have to put it in the show notes. I'm not sure if Pro yeah. Color is the right... The name escapes me. It's been a while yeah. since I've done one of these. Um, but you'll see the difference in, in the depth of your image. And when you're printing at home on your, on your inkjet, uh, you'll see that you're always going to want to use that Pro Color setting for your own work that's, say, going into a frame. But for the most part, um, a lot of zine printers are going to ask you for a CMYK output in a high-res PDF uh, that has everything embedded into it. And they'll give you directions of how to configure that uh, when you do the export uh, out of InDesign into uh, into the actual output. So it can get very technical. Um, so if you're new at it, um, two things you can do. One, talk to somebody who's done it and has been successful at it yeah. and has had, you know, learn from their mistakes, essentially. So you can find someone or call the printer or use a printer that has a good support service that can help you through that process because every printer is different. They use different print technologies, machine, etc. And that's, of course, if quality is very important to you. If you're not that type of person, you don't care, you just want to get something out there, find something cheap and cheerful and go for it if that's what you're motivated by. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, and, of course, we have to function. It's Everything is a function of cost in this world. Right. So uh, you have to, you know, ask yourselves, you know, Am I doing this for profit? You know, am I going to mark this up 40, 50%? If so, quality might be a little bit more of a focus. Do I just want to get my stuff out there, start a conversation, get cross something off my bucket list? Yeah. Then you can, you can consider your costs uh, a little bit differently. Now, in terms of <clears throat> what to put in the zine, um, as a wedding photographer, which is kind of you know, a mixed bag of all the photography genres. Uh, at the end of the day, we're trying to tell a story of the day. So that story generally follows a chronolo chronological order of the day's events or the events leading up to the wedding, engagement, marriage, etc. Um, and you're telling a story with those images. You're essentially writing an essay. So it's very easy to associate telling storytelling when it comes to a particular event. It can become a little bit more difficult when you're, um, when you're building a zine. Because, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, do I just want a zine that just shows a variety of, you know, 
all of my work through the last couple of years. It's the first time I'm doing it. It's just my favorite things that I want to look at. You can take that approach. It can be completely random or just based on personal preference, and that's totally cool. You can do that. Um, there's been a lot of photographers recently that are picking particular themes. Um, uh, for example, I know uh, Dan Novak is doing a 135 millimeter, so focal length um, sort of basis of that. Uh, the box camera project guys, I'm not sure if we're going to ever do a zine, but they're, you know, everything's done out of a basic box camera. Um, the Toronto film shooters, Tony uh, Skokovic just put one together, uh, which I think Bill and I are happy to be a couple of the first uh, participants in that. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in the first one. I'll be in the, uh, the second yeah. one myself. Yeah. And actually, we're going to be doing a um, Toronto Film Shooters annual. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Which will be run by the folks at this table, I think, for the yes. most part. So, yes. Um, and with Tony's, it's basically 6x6 six six format, color or black and white, and something that depicts life around the greater Toronto area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're building your own zine, you can... You can make it thematic, you can make it black and white only, you can make it landscape only, you could make it around a particular um, event or occasion. It could be, uh, you know, for our American friends, a 4th uh, a of July weekend zine, you could do a Christmas or holiday thing, you could make it about family, you could, I mean, the, the, the possibilities are endless for themes. I would suggest if you're doing your own first zine, um, and this would be, say, for public consumption, not something to share with your family. I would pick a theme, yeah. and I would keep, and I would make the theme very specific. Like I wouldn't just say film photography because you know what, what is that? It's just it's just photography, right? Um, you know, it could be macro, it could be portrait. Um, you know, you could p- you could pick a general theme like that, or you mm-hmm. could pick something very specific, like um, uh, a particular sport, as an example. And all the look at all the different stages of those sports some things that are helpful techniques to um employ when you're when you're building a zine is is when you're shooting and you can do diptychs or triptychs um you know and and for those who don't know like a diptych for example is kind of like a um uh, you're almost doing a b-roll um concept followed up by like a specific a-roll like or like a a zoomed in cut so like you take kind of a, a general shot of something and then something very uh, zoomed in and then very specific about what makes that moment of that larger shot more um, memorable, I suppose. So you could you can employ techniques like that. Um, uh, all those things you can do. So the possibilities are endless. Those are some things to think about. Now, the other thing is output of your digital images. And I say digital because everything has to be digitized if you're going to print a zine, Absolutely. regardless of what medium you captured it on and th- this this uh, next part kind of applies both to I think both film or digital doesn't matter uh, you have to finish your work and it has to be processed to such a high standard and that's where you have to factor in um, what type of output uh, you're going to want or you're going to need from your vendor so you're not going to want some ridiculously high resolution files if your print vendor can't even handle that because then you're just wasting your time and then the images will appear overly sharpened um, or sometimes even blurry because there's too much data for the actual printers to handle it. Yep. So talk to them about PPI and DPI settings. Mm-hmm. Remember, PPI settings are much different on your screen versus the print head. Yep. Like the print head can print like, you know, 5,880 DPI. 
because it's a print head and it's capable of doing that. And depending on the size of media it's printing is much different than say looking at a, or producing a 300 PPI image on Photoshop because you can't even really tell the difference because you're only looking at 72 DPI on your monitor. So, you know, don't be fooled by what you see in front of you. Um, it's a good idea if you're going to get heavy into print work and editing your images, get your monitors color calibrated, get them set to the right brightness setting. Um, I use a spider for my main printing machine. I don't yep. ever use, I don't ever color monitor or dependably rely on color monitor checking on my laptop because my laptop screen is constantly up and down. And so, I don't know how long the thing's been on, what the color temperature tends to change. And, and a lot of the laptops have auto uh, dimming and brightening and that sort of thing. Generally, I, I put my brightness setting to 50% um, on most of my monitors, and then I set the color accordingly. <clears throat> you can even go so far as to painting a room 18% gray. Um, yeah, and, and because you don't want colors reflecting onto the screen and throwing off the colors. And there are some people that are extremely good and very have a, and have an extremely good critical eye when it comes to judging color hues and contrasts and things like that. I am not one of those people. Um, I, I believe that uh, um, when in doubt, send it out. You know, get yeah. somebody who's good at it. Um, and that's another option as well, too. There are lots of services that will put the book together for you. The printers may even offer the service, and then they'll they'll tailor all those files to what you want versus the equipment that they want. So, That's again, right. it really depends on what you want to do. There's a ton of ways to go about doing this. Oh, exactly. Um, again, I'm nowhere near the depth of experience you have, James. I use... Uh, <laughs> Like I've, I've pumped out three zines so far, and they've all been done on Blurb, and they give you a downloadable app, and yep. it's literally drag and drop. Yep. And yeah, I, I just use high-res JPEG files, and I've done two in black and white, and one in a mixture of color in black and white. And I'm actually quite pleased on how the color has turned out. Uh, if you don't have extensive graphic design experience, uh, I would definitely strongly suggest Blurb. Uh, they give you a variety of different size options. I've sort of gone with a uh, a portrait eight and a half by by eight and a half by eleven. Yep. And uh, the 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 color in black and white reproduction is just to my eyes looks pretty bang on. Uh, if there's only one Achilles heel with blurb is their shipping costs to Canada. Um, Are prohibitively prohibitively expensive. Yeah, and that's really the only Achilles heel with the service now. As James said, you know, if you're going to, if you've got some graphic design experience, I was talking, chatting online with a woman named Karen Freer out of Bristol, uh, United Kingdom, and she's part of the Sunny Sixteen, I guess, extended, uh, you know, nation for lack of a better term, and she recommended uh, Maxim. They have a Canadian presence. They're out of, I think, their Canadian office in Vancouver. Uh, they will estimate. I believe it's it's Mixum, right? Mixum, Mixum, M I X A M. I think so. They have the ability uh, to, you can even, it's more for those who have some experience with graphic design, uh, some print experience. You can estimate uh, your cost, which is also a really lovely thing, uh, especially if you're going to, say you're planning to resell via an SD store or in person or a, a camera show or you know, back your car. Mm -hmm. It, that's a lovely thing to have. Uh, 
and uh, again, they give you a variety of different like binding options, which means then you're going to be looking at, okay, do I want to go perfect bind? Do you want to go with a staple? And those are kind of, that will kind of determine your cost. Even like if you go with a fancy cover, do you want it varnished? Do you want it uh, UV? And again, that adds to the cost. Uh, I, I do have a tiny bit of catalog experience from a, a job I had marketing over 20 years ago. And even then, it's like I know enough to know that I don't know enough. <laughs> and I'm not afraid to say that. Printers are a special breed, man. Like there are some guys that know printing like you just would not believe. And, and if you ever go into some of these print shops and you look at some of the stuff on their monitors – and you look at the same file on your monitor, you'll see a huge difference. And, you know, one of the things that um, I forgot to mention, too, so if you're editing your work in Photoshop specifically for a zine, talk to the print, uh, the zine printing company. Ask them for the ICC profile uh, for their printers. Well, that's even any profile, any printing company, because it also depends. What are they printing it on? Yeah, are they exactly. printing it on a... Are, are they low volume or are they kind of like have they got like a, a five or six color Heidelberg press uh, they've well, got yeah, access I mean, there's, to? Yeah, there's a, a variety of yeah. Probably they're not putting it on a Heidelberg, but uh, yeah. um, uh, I imagine the cost of setting up a Heidelberg for some amateur photographers uh, uh, zine might be a little cost prohibitive. But um, even when you're printing your own work and you're buying you know some inkjet papers out there. Um, get the ICC profiles for those printers. Exactly. Um, I generally, so I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent into printing here um, and editing. So when I'm editing and printing my own work um, uh, for my own printers, I never let the printer choose colors. I let Photoshop manage the colors um, because I want Photoshop's uh, uh uh, basically comparing the image or displaying the image to me as if it was on the paper itself. Uh, so that's the ICC profile of the paper. Um, so you load that profile into your computer. You select that uh, in Photoshop. I'm not going to get into the technical of how to do it. Um, YouTube will help you with that. Um, and then edit your image so it looks right on the screen. And then if you change that profile back to like a standard Adobe RGB profile or sRGB profile, you'll see the shadows are blown out and all kinds of weird. It looks just really off, but that's because a printer head is different so, from is your monitor. Different from your monitor. So and the paper is different. Papers are not always true white. Some are off white. They're warm. They have some yellow tint. You know, whatever ink takes to them differently. Um, any high quality paper manufacturer publishes and, produ and produces an ICC profile for free with their papers. Just go to their website, Google it, ICC profile for Ilford Gallery plus whatever, and you'll find it. And I believe Blurb also does um, allows you to access their ICC profiles as well, because that's what's really nice about Blurb is that it appeals to every range of producers. You can use their um, Booksmart software if you just want really drag and drop. That's me. <laughs> um, I use the BookWrite software. Oh, actually, I think I use BookWrite. Um, it gives you a little more access. Um, I have um, certain fonts that I like to use on a lot of my my websites. Um, print, you see them on the uh, CCR mm. 
banners, the logos. Um, if it's history, I use uh, Cartier. If it's CCR related, I use this font called Toronto Subway, which is the TTC font. Um, so depending on yeah, what that's I'm a, doing. That's a great point you bring up with the fonts too. So if you're going to get into the world of spreading your work out there, um, and this kind of delves into a little bit about the business of photography and the importance of branding and branding consistency. Mm-hmm. So Be consistent. Yeah, be yeah. consistent. Pick a font. Stick with it. Pick a certain layout style. Stick, stick with, with it. it. However you choose to tell your story within that zine, whether or not you choose something uh, chronological or based on some other sense of priority or arrangement, stick with that. Be consistent with it because... Um, at the end of the day, you're presenting who you are as an artist, um, and it's very um, important to make sure that, um, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is what you want to try to do, and it's not always possible, of course, is every time someone picks up a zine, they can tell that that's your work without looking at who the creator or the author was, right, right? Who, the, or who the artist was. Um, I just wanted to touch upon uh, fonts. This, this isn't quite a, a James-style constant agitation, <laughs> but it does get me going. Is I think when it comes to fonts and presentation, less is definitely more. Let your work speak for itself. Mm-hmm. There are thousands of free, ugly, ugly, ugly decorative fonts out there. And, and as the old guy at the table, I remember when uh, home desktop publishing became a reality with the Mac back in the 80s. And people said, well, I now have 30 fonts in my system. I'm damn well going to use them all on this one page. So, so did you use Kidnap? No. The, uh, yeah, so, and so can I just say Comic Sans Serif oh. is, a, is, a, is 100% <laughs> hard pass. That's a tragic uh, Same with Papyrus. Yeah. Unless you're doing a, a zine for kids in grade 2 and 3, yeah, you don't need it. Yeah. yeah, I generally, with my zines, I tend to, like, it's very pictorial heavy. I generally have a few short paragraphs at the end explaining the what's behind it all to give it some context, and I do it, and usually aerial. So it's aerial or, like, a nice, you know, sans-serif fonts. Yeah, they're, they're, keep it simple. They're clean, professional, and they do not take away from your work, so do not hide behind gaudy well, and last... my general rule is when it comes to displaying on a screen, um, a sans serif font is preferred. Mm-hmm. On print, a serif font. That's, yeah. that's just me. I read text better on a page when it I, I, has the and serif. This is, and this is where I go on my little rant. Uh, yeah, keep it simple. Like, um, I don't know how many people out there in our studio audience um, remember a certain music publication called Ray Gun from the early 90s. They had some great music journalism. Big problem is it was designed by a bunch of graphic designers on acid. So no one could really read the damn thing. <laughs> you know what? If you're doing a zine where your theme is medieval castles through Germany, then a gothic font would be great. For the title. For the title, yes. Or if you want to do the drop caps at the beginning of every paragraph, it would definitely help add to the theme exactly. of the entire. And I recommend one more thing. You know, Look around, see what other people have done. Yeah. You know, look at books and magazines you have in your house. If there's a magazine that says, I like the way they've laid this out, 
take it as uh, encouragement or ins inspiration. Don't have to rip them off, but they'll give you hints. Simultaneously, sure. if you find something like that magazine from, from the 80s or, or early 90s, 90s that says, wow, this gives me a migraine, then don't do what they do. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's definitely not one you want to read while tripping on acid. Um, they're no longer with us, although the music journalists who work for them have probably gone on to do great things in music journalism, but it's just sort of... <sighs> It was one. I think it was designed to win awards, and I, and I think if you're, you want your photography to 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 do the talking, not some funky layout or some no. obscure font that you found in your word processor or within Bookwrite or whatever template you're using to put your zine together. Yeah. Definitely, and again, everything you have to let everything come together and work together. If if things are jarring, then people stop. Notice. Please just stop. Right. Stop. Hit delete. If it's, start again. If it's your <laughs> first time doing one of these, keep it simple, right? And I mean, if you want to kick it really old school and get <laughs> sheets of paper and do up the text either by hand or on your old typewriter, cut and paste and paste it down and run it through your uh, photocopier that you keep at work and then collate it, fold it, and sell like the 20 copies, go for it. Absolutely. I mean, well, well, actually, that's been done for years. Actually, and Roxana, sure people still do that. Roxana Angles of a negative positive, she actually binds her own zines. Yeah. Like, I think she's several steps up from a photocopier, but... Um, well, yeah, your your no, that's great. Your I mean, modern multifunction device yeah. is fantastic, and that's pushing out your own style and brand with your zine. And that's right. Absolutely. Look, there's no right way or wrong way to do this. No. So all we're saying is, if you're gonna go down this path, there are several paths to choose, several branches of that path to choose. Uh, you again, you can go super high end mm -hmm. and make, you know, from. From image capture to output, yeah. everything can be aligned. You can shoot accordingly. Yeah, for example, I have a couple here that were uh, produced by uh, Bill Schwab, and he actually owns a printing company yeah, so. called Northlight Press, and they are absolutely fantastic. I mean, Bill Schwab yeah. himself is an amazing photographer, and um, I have the one um, Detroit um, where we used to live, and the images he captured here are absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Well, and again, it just and shows you, yeah, that you, the man knows exactly. his photography yeah. because he can do amazing work with, like, he has water slide here, which is all shot um, six by six Hasselblad yeah. to a digital yeah. mirrorless camera. And remember, at the end of the day, at least what it used to be, I don't know how much it is today, photography was all about the print, yeah. right? It was about producing that output. And you can look, at, you can really tell the difference. Uh, it's funny, like... Uh, you know, uh, that's why I'm, I'm always hesitant to judge photographic works on a screen, any screen. You want your work judged, in my opinion. Uh, the most, I think, complete way of, of having your work critiqued or judged or whatever you want to call it is for you to provide a print and nothing else. Because a screen is extremely deceptive. You can hide all kinds of things in 72 DPI that you cannot on a properly printed image. Um, and if you really want to show your work, I, I'm a traditionalist, admittedly, when it comes to that. 
it needs to be on paper for me and it needs to be finished work you know and it needs to be like for a salon level print uh execution of the image capture the processing and the output are the three big ingredients that need to be aligned for that i can't agree with you more because like if you're publishing it's out there and uh (laughs) You, know, you don't want to throw something out that's got dust and space junk on it. You don't want it, uh, you know, it's crooked and, you know, you're missing some shadow detail that you can pull out. It's like, yeah, as James said, finish your work. It's, uh, you know, in traditional print, you're doing it in the dark room anyway. So I don't understand why people kind of like, well, I just do it straight from the scan. No. Oh, you're you don't not- even get me started about that's right out of camera or I don't process my negatives. It's like, well, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I don't think we have time for a constant agitation. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other month's worth of podcast discussion there. Oh, but, man. You know, yeah. I, all I'm saying is you want your work to look the best, make it look the best. Exactly. Yeah. Take the time. I wanted to um, I've only produced a single zine. I've put out several photo books um, that are related to um, history projects of mine, but I've only put together one zine because I looked at the images and went, yeah, this this makes for good photography. And I wanted to do another one when I came with the images I came back from, from Chicago. And I looked at one of them and went, no, the, this this doesn't warrant being put into print. Um, will my trip to Montreal in May come out with something? Maybe. I hope so. Well, but I'm also going to be going there with the intention to do it. And I'll make sure that I bring, take all the images off of one type of film stock, one film size, um, FOMA Pan 400. And to oh, be that's, able to... That's another good point as well. Like, so if you're going to shoot for a zine... Go easy on yourself. Pick yeah. a film stock, like assuming you're doing film. Yeah. Uh, pick a film stock and stick with it. That's right. exactly. You know, have consistent. Yeah. And, well, that's you can sad. mix color and black and white, but I personally, I wouldn't. I would go either all color or all black or and all white. black and white. I go with black and white because I like black and white, and I suck at doing color. Well, yeah, I, I mix both because I'm special and different, and yeah. Yes, you are, Bill. Yeah, you're a special boy, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I'm not like Get the other. T-shirt. Yeah, we're not. I'm not like the other ones. And it's funny. On the way here this afternoon, I even had the idea of a zine um, uh, topic. I am also a skier, and I ski in the winter. I've been doing it longer than I've been shooting uh, photography. Um, and again, I take my camera with me uh, to my ski hill, the Caledon Ski Club, and I'm sort of like I've been there off season. I've been there in season. And again, it's like, oh, topic for a zine. And again, I will break all the rules and mix color and black and white, giving James an aneurysm. But <laughs> so what? <laughs> but again, it what tells. Was, what was rule number one? Do it for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> it's your work, man. Don't let anybody tell you what it should look like. Least of all us. Yeah. Unless you use Comic Sans. Oh, no, I won't. Then we will find you and then, kill you. We then, we're, then we're taking your T-shirt back. <laughs> and divvying up the camera collection. <laughs> we're going to give you a helmet instead because you're going to need it after all the bashings. Ouch. From one, uh, from one do-it-yourself to another, um, Matt has been uh, silent, probably just soaking in the, uh, soaking in the um, alcohol fumes that are 
going around. It's an the amazement table. with all these sitting at this table with all these brilliant minds. <laughs> I think I just threw up in the back of my throat as I said that. <laughs> well, but, I've never, yeah, I've never done as any, I've, I've never really even thought about it. So I just, uh, <laughs> but just your your work speaks for yourself in the fact that you have brought along a light meter you basically designed from scratch, and four. Uh, five. Actually, there's some that are still in the bag because yeah. uh, wow. Table and so, so if you don't know Matt, um, which you totally should, if you have followed along with um, the Ravini Labs uh, light meter Kickstarter, which got funded fully in 18 hours, that's amazing, right, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, you totally got it right in putting it out when you did because <laughs> all of a sudden there is now like three other photographic Kickstarters running, you avoided the fatigue syndrome, which <laughs> yeah. is amazing. Um, well, I got lucky. <laughs> wow, that's Yes, cool. you did. But Matt here is what I could only describe as a mad scientist when it comes to, uh, comes to photography in the sense that he builds cameras. Like, I mean, we, we touched on it in our premiere episode this season with 3D printed cameras, but... Some of these have 3D printing, the light meter 3D printing, but there's like fully CNC metal. This is not cameras. This, this is, is not your homemade camera club here, man. Like, no, this is some serious stuff here. And this uh, light meter, wow! Apparently, size doesn't matter. No, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, <laughs> to um, having one of those just ready and available when I. Um, when I have a camera that I need a light meter and don't don't have one on, so tell us a little bit about this. How did you how did you get into building cameras? Um, well, it started. I wanted to um, experiment more. Actually, the first uh, medium format camera that I ever had was a, a six by seventeen pinhole that I built. I didn't uh, I didn't even have one. Actually, I had to sacrifice a roll of Fuji Acros to get a take up spool. Uh, <laughs> Blast because I was now get out of here and leave all your gear. Well, <laughs> well, it was it was the better part of ten years ago, and I I uh, I didn't even I didn't even have any like friends who shoot film in real life uh, at that point, so I didn't have anybody I could bum bum an old spool off, and uh, so I um, uh, I built a six by seventeen pinhole um, because uh, I wanted to try it out, and you know pinholes are comparatively cheap uh, compared to lenses with glass. Um, so I so I built some pinhole I, I built that pinhole and then I I got a little bit addicted um, at the time I was in college and uh, they had a laser cutter so oh, I would go and buy yeah. quarter inch um, poplar boards from the hardware store and cut uh, draw them on the computer and, and cut out um, all the, the the housings for the the different pinholes um, so I built like a panoramic thirty five millimeter uh, pinhole I built uh, an anamorphic pinhole. Um, I built a six by nine pinhole, so I was just kind of experimenting. Um, and they all had like varying degrees of success. Um, but then I decided that I would try to build uh, a camera with a lens. So, um, I wanted to build a six by 17, um, because I thought that would be, you know, really interesting format to try out. Um, I had done a little bit of medium format then, so I said, well, let's give it a shot. So... Uh, I saw that a lot of the production 6x17s use a 90mm lens, so I bought a Schneider 90mm f8 large format lens, which, if you stop it down, doesn't vignette too hard on the corners uh, when you're trying to cover 6x17. Um, and then um, once I had the lens and uh, 
I just kind of started designing the camera backwards from there. So I, I figured out, you know, or I mean, Schneider publishes the um, what they call the, the the flange back distance or the um, flange focal distance. You you can um, start to design your your camera um, around that dimension. Um, and because 6917 is kind of like landscape only sort of aspect ratio, I just built a fixed focus camera. I mean, it's essentially a box that manages the film, keeps the light out, uh, holds the lens parallel to the film, and has two winding knobs. Uh, and then um, it's it's made from wood and, and steel. Um, I made uh, I made it mostly with hand tools. I got a cordless drill, and I got hold of a table saw at one point because um, I was I had limited tool access when I was building that one. Um, and then I used a large um, door peephole. Um, Home Depot sells these peepholes that are they're an inch in diameter instead of the tiny peephole, and they only cover 120 degrees instead of like 180 degrees. So I bought one of those, or I went at the store, and, and the view through it is actually pretty nice. So um, I bought one of those, and then I put a sticker, some black sticker over the 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 extra space to make the um, frame through the viewfinder approximate the the frame through the camera. And a really cool trick that I um, kind of figured out was um, if you take a laser pointer, you put your tripod. Uh, you put your camera on a tripod and you aim it at a wall and you take a laser pointer and you shoot the laser from the four corners of the um, film plane. You shoot it through the lens while the lens is open. The laser basically just comes out the other side and leaves a dot on the wall. So if you get like a helper, you could shoot a beam through there and put four post-it notes on the wall. And then when you look through your viewfinder, now you see the four post-it notes and you can place your stickers and adjust them so that the four post-its are sitting in the corner of your viewfinder. And that's a really easy cheat to match your optical viewfinder and the lens um, right. coverage together. Uh, and then I, um, later I, I bought a, uh, or I started getting a large format, I bought a, a graphic view uh, GV2 monorail camera. And it was giving me some trouble because uh, it's so large and it has 16 inch rail on it that it, you, and it, you can't take it apart. So uh, it was really hard to, to transport. So I made a new I basically made new bottoms for the standards, and I made a new rail out of three segmented pieces of extruded aluminum. Um, and the, the, the three segments attach with hinges, and, and, uh, and, and they have latches, so you can fold the rail up so that the whole camera becomes about six inches thick, and then it can fit in a backpack. Um, so I was able to get my, my large format kit from like 40 pounds down to like 18, I think. <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. Oh. Is that this one here? That's, that's that one there on the, on oh, the table. I, I'm seriously oh, impressed. Oh, yeah, I remember you publishing that uh, on Facebook a while back. You yeah. brought that out to the Mekong That's Delta. right, I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. From a film shooter meetup. That's right. Yeah, the Don Valley with 100%. Don Valley lug around. Yeah, yeah, it was super that was wet amazing. out. Yeah. Um, and it works It works so much better now. Also, I think I shaved like 800 grams off the total camera weight, too. Um, shit. I, wow. I, I'm, I'm actually That's not like sure pounds, how I managed yeah. to do that. Yeah. Well, because that camera, the, it comes with a built-in, like, um, one-axis, um, like, it's almost like a tripod head, but it only goes, it only, it's only a tilt. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's huge. And you already have a tripod that already has that built-in, basically. So yeah. it's kind of a pointless feature, but they, it's part of the rail and not easy to replace. Right. Uh, so in the process of replacing the entire rail, I did you know, needed a new way to mount it. So I just put a normal tripod socket. socket. Yeah. Nice. Um, 
then I then I was like, it would be cool to have a four by five technical camera for doing like architecture work and stuff, um, which was not something that I had really done, but thought it would be cool. So I was actually I was at Burlington Camera, and I said, "Do you have any like wide angle, large format lenses?" And they had a sixty five millimeter f eight Schneider, so I bought that um, and then designed a camera around it. And most of the camera is is uh, from homemade parts. Uh, I recycled an old uh, Vivitar macro bellows. I basically cut pieces off and turned that into a front front standard. And uh, it has a nice like helical focusing gear, so that makes it really easy to adjust. Uh, and I made my own bag bellows out of um, some synthetic rubbery stuff from. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember what it is. It's like poly, it's PVC sheet with felt backing already glued on from Fabricland. Oh, and so nice. a gimp suit. I, <laughs> I don't know about. I don't know if they so put. So you're felt familiar, on that. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> You've made a few of those. I've had a lot of fun with synthetic rubbery stuff over the over the years. Wow, I had no idea. Well, it's PVC, not latex. It's amazing what comes up in these discussions. Man, I, I just. <laughs> My 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 image of you, Alex, has been changed forever. Come on! Oh, I know. And, and we kept this episode clean for so long, but at forty-three minutes in, oops, it's time for true colors. <laughs> oh, it's gone off the rails and into the weeds. His, 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 his kink is leaking into his daily life. <laughs> um, he fits right in. Yeah. <laughs> So it has a has a rotatable back. Actually, I, I kind of copied how the, the graphic view handles their back, where they have these clips and, and pins. Um, so you, you can um, you can flip the back plane from um, landscape to portrait. And then the viewfinder, I use the same door uh, peephole, um, but the viewfinder can also rotate. And then because the viewfinder gets in the way of the dark slide when you have a four by five back on, the viewfinder can rotate out of the way, and it has a little uh, ball detent that locks it in place. So you can rotate out of the way pull out your dark slide and then rotate it back in place and compose and shoot. Um, that was a little problem I found along the way that required a sort of a, a late design alteration. And then it's got an aluminum handle. Um, and it, it doesn't weigh, I think it weighs about three pounds with the lens on it. It's, I mean, it's a little heavy, There's nothing wrong but with that, man. for, for well, a four by five, to a Linhoff Technica my, five. Yeah. My Linhoff is basically, uh, the same weight as a canoe anchor. <laughs> Um, so that's actually really fun. I had that at the at a, uh, a walkabout in the early fall that we did. Oh, yeah, okay. the Midtown one where yeah. we went, started at the uh, Brickworks and worked our way over to Rebel House. I remember you brought brought right. that along, and I was just like, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's a little beefy, but um, it's better than the than the full four by five if you don't need uh, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I, I I've got a six by nine rollback that I put on there, so it's to multi format. Um. And then it's got a couple of shoes on top. One for I've got a little th uh, 3D printed um, um, bullseye bubble level uh, mounted in a little hot shoe mount, and then I can put my little light meter uh, right on the top there and uh, give it metering capability. Yeah. So tell us about the meter itself. What what was sure. the inspiration behind it? Um, you've been responding well to a lot of um, feedback that's been given to you by um, backers. Yeah. Um, so the, the light meter project, um, I have a lot, I mean, I have a lot of cameras that have, um, dead selenium meters built into them. So like, I think probably most of the cameras from the sixties that have selenium meters are, are dead now. Uh, they, they, the meters are either not responsive at all or, uh, barely responsive and therefore, you know, completely inaccurate. 
Um, and then a lot of cameras don't have them at all. Like I, I have a Mamiya 645. I don't have a meter prism for it. And I like taking it out, but having to bring out my meter along with me is kind of annoying. And I always worry about carrying a meter in my pocket that I might drop it. So I try to wear it around my neck and then it gets all tangled in with everything else. So I, I like the idea of a, of, a, of a mounted meter. And I thought it would be really nice if um, there was something that came as close as possible to having the built-in reflective meter that these a lot of these cameras did have. Um, so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll build one. And then I started kind of designing it. And then I went, well, what'd be, what, wouldn't it be neat if it was the same size as the hot shoe? So I decided to basically take that roughly three-quarter by three-quarter inch square space and try to make it fit. Um, and I, I found a tiny little um, 0 0.49 inch um, OLED display and um, some little little tiny sensor and I designed this little unit that's um, and it's made with a with a different like a like a non hobbyist 3D printed technology. It's made by a, a right. special machine called MultiJet Fusion, yeah. um, which um, uses nylon powder and, and um, binds it together um, with uh, solvent and heat to create parts that are um, have a really high cosmetic quality, but they're also extremely strong. They don't have the um, sort of like wood grain esque um, problems that um, uh, home 3D printer, yeah. yeah. So the regular 3D printers, it's strong in two dimensions, but weak in one of the dimensions. This stuff is totally isotropic. It's it's the same strength in in all three dimensions, and also has a high heat tolerance. Um, so it's it's an excellent material for building final products in, like for low and medium production runs. Uh, it's much more economical than uh, injection mold tooling, right. and you have the ability to customize each unit even if you wanted to. Um, like you can embed serial numbers or something like that right into the parts. Um, and, uh, and, and another cool thing about um, 3D printing in general, uh, but multi-jet fusion uh, in particular, is that complexity in your design is free. Where if you add complexity to a part that you're going to injection mold, the mold has to get more complex, which means it costs more money, which right. means there's more potential for error or mistakes. Um, but this uh, uh, technology they don't care if you're printing like you know a, a, a coffee cup or some geodesic multi-layered you know crazy shape it's all the same to them the machine doesn't care right. so you can make like totally impossible features you can make hollow objects that just have a tiny little hole for the excess powder to drain out of you can make like literally anything you can imagine so inside the the there's so there's some little uh, lever springs printed right into the bottom to provide friction against um, camera hot shoes that don't have any springs built in because some cameras have springs some cameras don't so there's little spring levers in there to provide friction so it doesn't fall out of the shoe um, there's uh, little springs that keep internal components held in place um, so like I've leveraged the, 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 the value of this technology to make a product that's far more advanced than the uh, injection molded version would be able to do and in response to comments from Kickstarter backers they wanted things like accessories like people were saying oh I have a viewfinder um, you know, so my shoe's already full, um, you know, um, can I mount it on something or whatever? So I've got now five different accessories that so far, a sticky backed, uh, shoe that you can stick onto a camera. So if you've got like a, you know, an old folder and you want to, you want to mount on it you just put two sided tape, it'll come with a square of two sided tape and you just right. stick it right on the meter or on the camera and then the meter, you can slide it on and off. Um, 
uh, a double shoe. So you slide it in near one shoe and then you put your viewfinder there. There's one that's still in the same spot, but just a little bit taller. And then there's now one off to the side, an inch and a quarter away. Yep. Slide that in there so you can put your, you know, Voigtlander wide angle lens on or something like John could use his, uh, his Besset, Besset L. Well, I do have a, uh, my, my best uh, R2M, the meter has died. Oh, sadly, wow. uh, I don't, well, or I'll have to send it away. Maybe get maybe Rene in Quebec can fix it. But uh, like I, I definitely ordered one of these because it'll be perfect for that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. For and it, so that so right now my R two M is sort of I pretend it's a it's a a, a Leica M four. Because dreaming is cheaper than, uh, than having. Now that now the M stands for manual. Right? Yeah, that, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I did have one question. Uh, what battery? Do you use? Um, so it runs. It runs on a common LR44, a single common LR44 alkaline battery. And <laughs> available anywhere and everywhere. Yep. Um, it does what, have to be the alkaline type. Yeah. Um, what sort of oxides. do you have in that for the actual uh, light meter? Cell? It's essentially, it's a it's a, a digital light sensor that's um, intended for uh, installation in like a cell phone. So the 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 sensor that you that detects when your head is up against the phone or oh. the sensor that uh, runs your screen brightness. Right. They're very, very tiny little, oh. basically light to digital converting sensor. Cool. So it's essentially one of those. Yeah, um, nice. And they're, they're, really, they're really small and um, really quite easy to use. So, and, and, they're, and they're accurate. Like they have a good, they, 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 they cancel out um, excessive IR and stuff. They actually have like some built-in oh, features. For, I was just sort of curious on how much, how extensive testing you went through to get it just right. Um, I mean, it does have a spectral response, um, but um, it's so the way the way this specific sensor is designed, it has two um, photo receivers essentially, light receivers. One is is IR skewed, and the other is blue green skewed. Okay. And so you can actually you can you can take the readings separately and and do like math conversions on them or something like that. Right. You can do a bunch of different things for it. Um, actually, so, that makes a lot of sense because like the blue green, you're always going to have more more blue green in a digital sensor just because we have more blue green wavelengths and it's a higher energy wavelength too exactly. yeah so oh, that's wow what a in, what a technology packed piece of equipment yeah yeah and such yeah. a small package now, here's, here's an idea off the top of my head we're talking about ir um would it be possible to have it for people who do infrared photography could you do an ir version i could yeah i could make one actually that rejects visible well works to reject visible light um, more effectively, more heavily, yeah. more heavily weighted I, I, on the I IR wavelength. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. there could be a market for that. Because, oh, I would oh, be down for because that. Because the thing is, because like, with IR, the hardest thing with IR is to figure out the exposure. Absolutely, you're yeah. guessing half yeah. the time. Right, you're yeah. guessing all the time. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you yeah. literally can't see you're it, so you have a, to you're, guess. You're throwing a dart in a hula hoop and hoping for when I was <laughs> so, you know. when I was reviewing the Rolly IR four hundred film, I was using my Gaussian Luna six F meter. And I mean, I got most of my exposures, yeah. but I'm sure they could be better. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you you just don't know how much uh, infrared radiation there is out there on a particular day. Right. Yeah, you, you can't estimate know. it. Even so, it's impossible know. to estimate. But if you have a, if you have even a sensor to, to give you a range and say, okay, well, I get my best results in this range, that would be really cool. Now, in terms of um, like spot versus center weighted and that sort of thing, like. Mm -hmm. Is like to like how many is it like a a certain uh, field of view or how does that all uh, work? So there's two. So there's a combination of things there. The sensor is shrouded, um, so it has a small sort of I 
effectively like a lens hood, um, and that hood helps to block um, like excessively bright sky from sort of you know like pushing make, making it yeah, yeah ending like up off axis light or whatever. Yeah. Also the the sensor. So um, the sensor has um, like an angular um, response. Um, uh, range so light striking it directly will read higher than the same light striking it at a at an angle mm -hmm. and the greater the angle the the more the changes so that's mm -hmm. a little bit that's kind of effectively like center weighted okay um it like it, it's only using one sensor but it's uh it the light off axis light produces less um uh, impact on the reading and then also because it's it's shaded by the the shroud that's around it um, it's it's effectively like a forty five degree angle cone, and the cone is slightly clipped across the top to reduce. So, for example, if the sun was high but in front of you, um, it, it won't impact the the reading the way that um, if it was a hundred eighty degree right. field of view would be impacted. So, would you say that if you sort of treat it more or less like a, a typical center weighted, you're going to be okay? Yeah, aim it aim it you know pretty much at what you want to what you what you're trying to meet it for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of what your testing experience has been like, have you found that like when shooting at say in side lit or backlit conditions as opposed to front lit, which would be a little bit more predictable, um, in terms of compensating your exposure, are you finding that kind of generally falls in line with most light meters or is it any quirks or anything like that? I've had it agree pretty well with most of the other meters. Um, you know, when you, when you, if you try to compare it against an incident meter, then you, you the reflective meters have the added complexity of the the subject right. you know coloration Color that, yeah mm -hmm. um so um it it performs well against incident meters when you're using the reflective meter off uh you know a gray card or something mm -hmm. close to gray um they they agree with each other mm -hmm. in most lighting conditions you know really adverse lighting conditions like you know strong backlighting and things right. like that that's obviously. I mean, if you if you do the old um, you know sunset photo uh, with people standing in front of it, you know you're still going to have a bad time. Because yeah, you still. I mean, you still compensate. You right? still have to compensate. Uh, certainly not. Yeah. I don't. I wouldn't. No meter is going to give you that correct reading. But right. in terms of what you have to compensate, that's what you. I, I, what I'm hearing you say is it's pretty consistent with most meters, built-in meters today. The the compensation that's required. Yeah, they agree under a stop with yeah. majority of meters. Yeah. Will there be a version two where you'll do all the thinking required for the photographer? Yeah, it'll aim the camera and everything. Yeah, you can uh, right. you can sell that to Canon and Nikon for all those uh, department store photographers out there. That, uh, <laughs> Ow. You know. Yeah, that's. Uh, I went to Best Buy. I'm a professional photographer now. So I got a question <laughs> that was sort of given to me by a member of the Negative Positives. Uh, uh, photography group. Uh, I threw a live up there Friday afternoon, and I think one of the when I sort of said, "Yeah, this is what I'm up to this weekend." And then one of the someone I can't remember the name off the top of my head. The phone has been turned off because we have new audio equipment, and of course, uh, <laughs> smartphones and the new audio equipment don't play nice together. Uh, so my apologies in advance for not uh, dropping this uh, person's name. But again, uh, do you have a follow up project in mind? Well, I'm trying to stay focused. I am, you know, I, I got to get um, this one done first because I'm I'm infinitely distractible. But I've okay. I, I've got a few dozen more ideas cooking at, or in various stages of uh, it's always the way being exactly. So, will there be a generation two of this meter? Like seriously, like is it going to have more fine tuned um, exposure compensation? So, actually, you. You and others, but you, I think, were the first one to mention it. Yeah. Was adding additional ISOs. So I did go back and I added additional ISOs like 125, 160, 80, 320, nice. 250. 
Oh, good. Um, the, the, so you the, can shoot your FOMA 400. The ones that exactly. are... Exactly. And, of course, <laughs> even like something like FOMA 200 right. plus, uh, plus X, FP4, etc. And so I 30. Double yeah. X developed in, yep. uh, in D96, which is a 250. Yep. Um, and then also I, uh, I added... Um, this is since the video, essentially, mm. in, the, in the intervening week and a bit. I've done um, an exposure compensation feature as well. So in one-third stop control, very similar to uh, you know what you might see on a normal um, okay. you know, SLR from the 80s or something, that you can exposure compensate plus mm-hmm. or minus two stops in one-third stop increments that way. Nice. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Um, what a great... This was really a good episode. Really enjoyed it. Uh, my name's Alex Lopes. If you have a 16-inch rail, putting hinges on it might be a good idea. <laughs> uh, this is Bill Smith. Uh, don't forget to dim your monitor if you're printing onto paper. This is James Lee. If you have a 16-inch rail, good for you. <laughs> this is Matt Beckberger. Uh, I don't know, fixer. I hardly know her. Have you ever said that one before? <laughs> Not bad for a first time. Nice. This is John Meadows, and Matt's invention can only be have, can only be done north of the border because, sorry, in the states you have yards, up here we have meters. <laughs> Very good.